0: Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are playing Final Fantasy VI. This is the eighth episode of our book club, and, and we're discussing what we're calling week six, which covers everything up to the end of the game. So that this is the last week. Uh, we'll be covering Kefka's Tower and, and also discussing the game kind of, kind of as a cohesive whole and how it hangs together. I'm your host Ben Adams with the, the whole crew. We have reassembled here for this this boss fight of a podcast. Uh, so the the first member of our party here is uh, Justin Bortnick. Hey, Justin. Hey, Ben. Uh, thanks for coming on. I think you've made every every podcast so far. So that that you're, you're you, you haven't abandoned us. I missed the side point. quest, but okay, uh, that's that, that's true. That was just a side quest. You you don't need to do that to complete the game. Okay, fair enough. But uh, but speaking of that side quest, uh, next we have Shana Miloski. Hey, Shana.
1: Hey, and also destroy, destroy, destroy. Just throwing that out there.
2: <laughs> uh, next to Shana, John Parrish. Hey, John. What up? I'm. So I guess you, you name me third. So I'm definitely in charge of the third party, right? I'm not the third member of the first party because I, I just want to make sure where I'm clear in the standings. Uh,
0: yeah, let's go with
2: that. Woo!
0: <laughs> and, uh, and the fourth member of whatever party, uh, Richard Rosenbaum. Hey, Richard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely going to divide this up. Um, so who's who's
3: got who's got um, life three?
4: <laughs> I
1: don't have any life.
3: Oh, well, you're you're not going to be the leader of either party then, I guess.
2: I have mute.
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> and and so like- given given the contents of this chapter, is anybody uh, having a life at the end? <laughs> And
4: uh, last, uh, we have Jordan Stokes. Hey, Jordan. I have all my friends here that I'm fighting for.
1: Aw. I know what love oh, is nice. now. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I want to know what love is.
1: <laughs> I can show you?
0: <laughs> yeah. Maybe. <laughs> maybe.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. So, uh, well, welcome to the last week here, guys. I think we, let's start off, actually, with... Uh, Something from the forums. Uh, we have uh, James Lee commenting about uh, this final conf- confrontation as a, as it's an existential struggle, kind of a, a con- confrontation with nihilism here. So, so, what do you guys think of that that observation?
4: Starting with a softball, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're just jumping
0: right in here. This is the final battle. You can't, you, you don't get to, you know, fight the little guys first. You gotta, you know, go right into it.
4: So, to sort of. Uh, tease out the question a little bit more. What's really being talked about is that conversation between Kefka and all the people, where Kefka says that the world is meaningless because essentially because death is inevitable, right? None of it means anything because it will all be destroyed by me right now. But But more to the point, it will all be destroyed, and therefore there's no point in doing anything. And then everyone responds with their own two cents about why there is a point in doing something. And a lot of it is about the power of friendship, but it's a bunch of different things. So uh, Edgar, for instance, says that it's for political reasons, that he has to have the right kind of country and make the right kind of country. And because of that, because he has this duty, life is worth living. And Tara says that she knows what love is now, and therefore life is worth living. And uh, Setzer says, I have a new airship, and therefore life is worth living.
3: (laughs) He's got a point. He does have a new airship.
4: Yeah, yeah. Like, Tara might know what love is, honestly. Love is kind of an unknowable thing, but Setzer has an airship. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's like uh, I think John said in the very first podcast, it's about – the little day-to-day things and the the little people, it's not um just these big concepts like love and friendship. It's specifically um my friends right here and I love the kids in Moblets and I love my brother. Um I think that there is a specific line in here that I can't find in my notes right now, but uh oh, it's the day to day concern, the personal victories, the celebration of life and love. So it's, um, you know, Kefta is focusing on the big picture and the game is saying, oh, how about we focus on the the little things, Um, which is, you know, kind of what we do on the podcast.
4: That's true. We we, we tend to like focus on the little things and then pick them to pieces until they die. (laughs) But but we could could
5: appreciate being called a little thing. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I have a question. Um, you know, I think this game is about a repetition in a sense. Uh, you have two no parts kidding. of the game. Uh, well, I mean, when you're finding the same monsters over and over. Um But this idea that there was a war of the magi in the past, and is it going to happen again? Is the world going to be destroyed or nearly destroyed over and over again? And Kefka is saying, yeah, basically it will. Why would you rebuild if you know that um there's going to continue to be destruction over and over again? And, I mean, the game actually sort of cuts off that repetition because, um, the magic leaves the world. So that sort of conflict between magic and humans can't happen again. So it's sort of like, um, I don't know, ending the cycle. It's, it's sort of a religious concept. It's as if there is some sort of messiah. Maybe you could say Terra or the party as a big messiah coming in and changing history at last. That, um, it's now, I don't know, It's progressing as opposed to spiraling, if that makes any sense. Which is interesting because this idea of repetition is very, um, Eastern philosophical, you know, Buddhist, um, Hindu, you know, reincarnation sort of thing. Um, whereas this idea of history as progress is a more Christian sort of thing, I would argue. Um, so that's fascinating if you consider the final tears of bosses and Kefka with the angel wings and the organ music, um, which is something that we uh, could talk more about. But uh, yeah, I think Shana, Shana, I are you it. saying
4: there's Christ symbolism in this game?
1: Well, <laughs> I think 16-year-old Channel said that and got an A on her term paper. So, I mean, 16-year-old Shayna was always right.
4: Kind of <laughs> because all that she uh, ever said was by the way guys there's Jesus symbolism in this <laughs> by the way guys there's, did you notice there's Jesus symbolism in my omelette this morning guys so can, you, can you take it back to the kitchen you can sell that on ebay
5: yes yeah, the omelette of Turin <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the,
3: the game is a lot about uh, loss and coming to terms with loss and um, it seems like Kefka's idea is that there is no coming to terms with it that you're going to lose everything eventually that everyone loses everything and so who cares so what what difference does it make and that is obviously the nihilistic point of view um but the 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 themes that come up over and over again with with our player characters are you know they're losing their family members usually losing loved ones um and having to figure out not just what to do next but whether it's worth Going on at all, especially after the destruction of the world, um, they they all need to f- find their their own motivation, and uh, so that is a kind of that is a very existentialist thing: making your own meaning meaning in the face of kind of the overwhelming darkness of reality, um, still doing something to create a meaningful life or to uh, to build something that makes life feel meaningful in the subjective sense even if you're even if you are willing to admit that there's no meaning in the objective sense. So, yeah, well, that, that like, definitely is.
4: I feel like you hit the the nail right on the head there, right? It's the even so I will struggle on right? And in the confrontation with Kefka, that does seem to be the kind of thing. No one tells him you're really wrong, right? Uh, they say that, oh, well, people will keep rebuilding, but they don't really question his ability to to keep smashing it all, right? And they don't say, I'm never going to die, right? <laughs> they, they acknowledge that death is inevitable. They don't have any proof at that point that even if they killed Kefka, that the world would not just sort of uh, stagnate out because they don't know that plants are going to, to start growing again, right? Um in Kafka's absence, like they could still get hungry, right? So I think at that point, they are being really existentialist because they aren't claiming that there's any point to their to their victory or really any point to their beliefs, other than that they are something to believe in, right? And when, uh, when, when Sabin says, like, oh, and I've, I've got my brother's love, he doesn't say, well, everybody should love their brother, and therefore everyone has something to believe in. It's just on the micro scale that they're finding this meaning, right?
3: Right. It's kind of utilitarian, right? It's that they're, they're, they all have things that they personally uh, are still willing to fight for um, to prevent the loss of, even though the, that loss is is inevitable, right? That, that that all of these people that they've lost in the past uh, haven't prevented them from being able to, to love or to do things. Uh, whereas it seems like Kefka really doesn't have any ability to create. He can only destroy. He can only uh, take what other people have done and kick it over. But he doesn't, it doesn't look like he has any uh any motivation to produce something in the world or even for himself other than just other than destroying things there's nothing that he wants
4: sure yeah, and I think that that might be the most coherent sense of what kefka is is there to be right um and it's it's not a philosophical argument against nihilism, but it's a sort of emotional damning by association of the nihilist worldview, saying that mm-hmm. nihilism inevitably leads you to be like Kefka, right? Which it doesn't. that doesn't actually follow. You can be a happy nihilist, right? You could very well sort of switch around some of the dialogue and have one of the people say, you know what, Kefka, I'm going to fight you because nothing matters anyway, and eventually we're all going to die. So because of that, I can do what I want, and I want to fight you. Right, like that
0: would be a nihilist position. Right, Yeah, this is, Maybe that's what tomorrow mean, meant. This is, is the one it. must. Im- this is <laughs> the one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> one must
4: imagine isn't someone who is playing Final Fantasy and like grinding for magic points in the uh, the dinosaur forest happy. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, no one of- must not. I I can say. <laughs> <laughs>
5: isn't, it, isn't it sort of like deeply ironic that of all of the people expressing a nihilist? point of view at this point in the game that it's Kefka. He, he, you know, he's up there sitting you know, uh, I, I believe in nothing Lebowski, while he's the only <laughs> one who, who really uh, I mean, unless someone comes along and kills him, he, he's literally God he will live forever, he has the power to create and destroy stuff but he's the one who's saying, well no, it's not actually worth it. It seems like he would be the least likely one given his situation at this point
3: Right. Which well, kind of uh, emphasize his own point, right?
2: Yeah, maybe it's an observation of how meaningless life becomes as you, I guess, sort of ascend the evolutionary or cosmic or conceptual scale in that the more things you are capable of doing or the more things you are capable of resisting, I guess, the more resistant you are to the world around you, the more you can impose your will on it rather than have the world's will imposed on you, the less likely you are to find meaning in things just because – you know, a, a a creature who is capable of anything at any time is also incapable of error or discovery. So, I, I Kafka's not quite at that point, but he might be close enough that he's like, eh, I've I've seen it all. Like, what can't I do?
1: But you know what? Everyone keeps saying, and I'm going to disagree with you slightly, just a little bit, um, that Kefka is all about, you know, destroying a non-existence. He doesn't build anything. Well, that's not entirely true, right? He does say that he's going to build uh, like a tower that or, you know, some sort of. I don't know, uh well, anyway, that uh represents non existence, and he also is he's seemingly waiting for your party to show up, like what is he doing up there? you know he's throwing down lightning bolts if you really wanted to destroy to do it, you know. You're going down there finding Go-Go you know, or wasting your time doing these side quests. He could have destroyed the world a million times. But it's like he's waiting for you. You come in, and he says, oh, I've provided entertainment for you. And it's in the form of all of these um, you know, mini-bosses or sub-bosses. So he is creating something for you, and that's the last level of the game. So it's sort of like he is the game designer, and you guys are... You, you know, specifically are the player. Um, which is kinda of funny because it makes me more designers were like, Well, life game might as well make an RPG for people to play. But I don't think that's what they really like. but i I don't know, what do you think of that idea of Kefka as you know, the builder of the the final dungeon?
5: I have read some some fan theories when I was when we were first starting out and I was looking up what's been written about this game where somebody had written you know I think I think that Kefka is actually trying to get you to kill him like he he out of sheer boredom like he he's achieved everything and he's like you said just sitting up there he could have destroyed the world but there's nothing else for him to do and so he wants to have a new experience and that is that necessitates him allowing you to come up and, I guess, cast Ultima on him until he dies.
1: Guys, I have Epiphany, Epiphany. So Kefka wants you to kill him because that's the only way to end the game. And if you end the game, the world ends, his world ends. So he won. Yeah.
4: So that is an interesting thing, right? Like the, the game aspect of this confrontation seems to run at cross purposes to, uh, to the plot aspect of it because the party says Oh, we are fighting to save the world but just as you say if they win the battle then the game ends and the world effectively does not continue to be um it's not just not just the espers that vanish in a puff of smoke right um and by the same token although the party is being very existentialist and existentialism is clinging to meaning just for the sake of it when you know that You cannot get stronger. You cannot win. You are going to lose. You are going to decay. Time's arrow goes only one direction. No one made this world for you. This world simply came to be. You are a breath in it, and then you are gone, right? But because it's a game, this world was made for me to be in, right, by people who knew what they were doing and gave me a task to do. All I can do in it is get stronger, right? I can't lose a level. I can't really lose the game, effectively. I mean I could I could give up the game and say I don't want to play it anymore, but if I die, I just keep on going until I beat the next thing and get a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger. You know, you were talking about how Kefka has become God. What is the process of becoming uh, good at an RPG or uh, of beating an RPG, leveling up in the RPG, but the process of gradually incrementally becoming God. And just like you said, that's kind of a grim existence and a, a joyless one. How terrible would this game be if you started out harsh with your end game party? Like what a, what a joyless slog that would, that would become. Right? So in a way, like you, you are becoming the God figure and destroying the world even as you're acting out the scenario of overthrowing the God figure and saving the world. And I don't know if that means anything, but it's interesting.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, speaking of overthrowing the God, what do we make of the fact that the, the the structure of this final fight, that this giant tower that, that we have to kill. And I I guess as an entry into that. We'll just ask, uh, how did you guys kill Kefka? Like how, what what process did you use to actually win? Because there's kind of more than one way you can approach this battle. And I think, Depending on what you've done before, it's either relatively easy or you know an utter grind and a complete slog to get through.
2: So I'll I'll go first because I remembered the fight, the fight like with the actual Kefka Angel God figure at the top of the statue of creatures being significantly harder than it turned out to be this time. Just because I think I was a little better read up, so I was rocking. So the the way it. Sh- it shook out, partly through some folks dying off and the, the climb up the tower of bosses. Uh, I had Terra in first position, who had both uh, the Jewel Box, which lets you uh, double cast a spell, and the Economizer, which, lets ev- which reduces every spell to one MP. She had those equipped, so she would fire off Ultima, and then Quick, and then, while Quickened, fire off Ultima two more times. And I also had Gogo in the party as well, who could therefore imitate all of her magic spells, so he could also, at slightly greater expense, fire off Ultima uh, and Quick, or he could fire off Quick and then uh, hit Ultima twice. So between those two, I literally don't think Kefka got off a single attack.
4: So I had almost exactly the opposite experience. I, uh, I I remembered that there was a multi-tier boss at the end, and I decided, although I'd been you know consulting walkthroughs to get through this game game quickly, when I went into Kefka's tower, uh, I had sort of an hour or so free, and I was like, uh, you know what? I'm just going to save my game and throw myself at this and see how far I get just for the fun of it. And my party was not really well leveled up enough. I had like four people who i had used for all the side quests who were like pretty badass, and then I had like the 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 bumbling B squad, a strago and realm show, basically, um, and then I <laughs> further I assigned them to like the party that has the cruelest slog through the tower, so where I had been usually playing final fantasy you 're struggling against like your own willpower to keep grinding and like sort of time more or less. I was at the skin of my teeth all the way through this constantly, constantly resurrecting people, um, often getting down to just one character and digging myself out of that hole and so so on. When I got to Kafka, I, uh, I, I beat the first three tiers pretty handily, and I, I sort of, like, found my rhythm, and I managed to reconstitute my one solid good party, right? Yeah. But then two things happened, which is that as I was going into the final boss, uh, like, into the final floating Kefka, one of my people got killed as, like, a sort of uh, dying attack from the the tier below – um, it was one of my strongest. I think it was, I think it was Locke. I can't recall at this point. And then Kefka hits you with this, uh, attack right when you go in that makes you blind and mute, right? <laughs> but the, I didn't know that that was how it worked because I hadn't been reading the strategy guides. And what you see is that all of your characters have the little sunglasses. Hey, I'm blind now. But I didn't know that they were mute. So all I knew is that they couldn't use magic. And I'd like not yet been muted in the entire game somehow. So I was like, oh my god. Oh my god. I'm actually kill me. And uh, I was just like frantically casting life, trying to heal people up. Um, Setzer was alive and had the six dice, and every now and then I would have him fight because he didn't have enough magic to cast Resurrect anymore. And eventually Kefka died. And I was like, <sighs> okay. <laughs> so we had a, a very, very different experience through this boss fight, John. And I'm, what I'm curious, what I said in the, uh, in the forum, which of us do you think had the better time?
2: <laughs> uh, so given, so I had I had some challenges in the <clears throat> excuse me in the fights leading up to the tower, marching through the tower because you do have to separate your party a little. So you it's a mix of skill sets at that point. It's like all right, I need some heavy hitters in each party, but I need some healers and support staff as well, and I, I need some folks to essentially be you know human shields and soak a little bit of damage. So uh the march through the tower was pretty satisfying and very challenging. And then once I got to Kefka, it was it was also kind of satisfying to just shut him down without letting him open his mouth, being like, Nope, bam, 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 bam. And then uh and then yeah, being being done with that. So uh, I mean, I, there have been times in the past where I've had a very difficult boss fight and sort of sank back into the couch with relief once they dissolve or explode or whatever the appropriate animation is. Uh, but there was also something satisfying about, uh, about this one, just, be, just being an, an epic sort of, you know, Diddy on Drake beat down.
4: <laughs> well, i mean it's, it sounds like you had a good mixture actually of like a satisfying struggle up to the point and then a sort of uh parting confirmation from the game that you are the baddest of asses <laughs> now to the other thing that people were talking about oh, i don't know does anyone else want to talk about how they how they killed kefka hearing no takers i will say the other thing that we were going to talk about is the aesthetics of that uh, that last boss fight which first of all just the 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 scroll up is a brilliant brilliant idea i'm sure it's been copied to death since but I remember very clearly having my mind blown by that and thinking, thinking every time that clearly this one was the real boss <laughs> when, I, when I played that the first time through. Like absolutely bought it hook, line, and sinker. Even this time a little bit when they got to the, uh, the Pieta one. I was like, oh, right. He's, I remember it was vaguely religious and he was sort of floating in the air. And then that turned out not to be it either. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, what do we think of the progression? Like It's different ideas of what badass looks like, right? So it starts off with this big, big angry face and that's the weakest version of it, right? Then you have the was it the twisted tree of someone remind me.
1: I mean, there's so, like it, naked people and sort of demon-y looking things, um, but they have funny names, like one is the tiger. Um, I don't remember the other
4: ones, but someone can list them, I'm sure. There's a tiger, there's magic, there's machine, right? Yeah, or tools. What so that's the one is with hit. Yeah, power. That hit. is one with hit, which is also maybe, yeah. yeah. And what I find interesting about that is that uh, less in the art, but in those names you kind of have a listing of the components that your party is made up of, right? So you've got Edgar with the tools, uh, probably Terence. Sabin and Sion are Hit. Gao is Tiger, right? Um, Gao and Umaro are Tiger, and maybe Mog as well. Uh, so this interesting, like mirroring of not the individual characters, but the sort of the roles that they are able to fill in the party.
5: So the way the way that I that I read this entire tower, um, I know that this is not a, a newer novel reading, is that each each segment of this tower is actually. Uh, a reference to a different segment of the greatest work of literature ever written in the Italian language, <laughs> Dante's Divine Comedy,
3: mm-hmm.
5: where uh, the the bottom you have Satan, who is imprisoned up to his waist in ice, as in the uh, Inferno. Uh. In the middle you have Purgatory, where you have animals and machines and you know, barely clothed people who are who are here for whatever reason that they didn't, and then at the top you have uh, Mary and Jesus, sort of mirroring uh, Michelangelo's Pieta statue that is so famous, and then at the very, very top you have God, and it sort of mirrors Dante's journey through the uh, the Commedia as you climb up this tower.
4: Interesting, interesting, but not like the not the part of the Commedia that everyone knows and cares about, being Inferno, but like the, the Progidorio and Paradiso uh, thirds of it that no one ever bothers to read.
5: Yeah, I mean you get you get the Inferno at the bottom because Satan is there, but uh, you only get his top half, and I guess in the book you also only get his top half. So
4: <laughs> we we never get that Satan ass shot that we've been begging. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be in the HBO remake of Dante's Inferno.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right,
4: right.
2: Looking at a graphical representation of all the bosses, uh, yeah, there is some. I mean, there's you know Christ imagery everywhere, Shayna Drink, but there is very obvious Christ imagery here because, like, in the second tier, there is literally a a guy in in crucified pose in the middle of that in the middle of the statue tower tree thing.
5: Yeah, I forget the that's that's. Um... Power, I think? No. Um one of them. It's not tiger, that's the animal. The but the the barely clothed woman is in crucified
4: form. Another reading that has been put forward, which I think is really interesting, is that um that the tower, the three stages of the tower leading up to Kefka are you fighting again the bound to him somehow. And what's interesting about that is that it's, it's kind of convincing purely from visual and aesthetic elements, like the, the, uh, the uh, Jesus stuff looks a bit like the goddess image, and you can kind of map the other two onto the other two, and then there are three in each case. What's more interesting, though, is that this is something that Nintendo of America put forward as the gospel truth in their literature that they made about the game, and Nintendo of Japan never intended it. I think that's a really interesting moment of, like, right hand not knowing what left hand is doing, and therefore imposing a narrative on it.
5: Yeah, like, it was not even a Nintendo game, right? It's a Square, Squaresoft game, so it was a completely different company coming in.
4: Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, that's that's, that's what I meant to say, clearly. <laughs> I guess I, apparently... See, that,
5: I, that, I, that probably makes it worse. It wasn't even, it was like, <laughs> it was like the left foot not knowing what somebody else's hand is doing. <laughs>
4: yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: Well, I mean, imagine the imagine the context in which you're in when you're. I mean, we've talked about the various translation differences between the original Japanese and you know the final version or in the original American NES release, but think about you know the strategy guide as well. Think about the context in which it was made, in which these pe- these people couldn't have imagined that there would be a world 20 years in the future where all of the information of this game would be readily available and shareable and comparable. So. There had to have been some thinking like, "Oh no one's ever really going to know what it's called we'll just call it Fire Three instead of Furaga or something like that, or we'll say these bosses are just yeah, they're rematches of the original boss because like who's going to know like the the three people who speak who speak Japanese and, and play this game come on
4: I also wonder then with um there's like infamously there's a, a bug in this where your physical evade does nothing, right? Or something like that. There's, there's some one of the, the core stats that actually doesn't have any effect at all in the game. And you wonder, did they actually not know that that was the case when they were going to release, or was it like, eh, you know what, people are just going to play this. They
2: don't need to have the numbers actually lining up to anything, because how would they ever know? Yeah, because, like, it's... Yeah, the, the idea that there would be multiple... Captured replays, and that even if you did capture them, that you would have any way to share them with other people aside from like taking polaroids of your screen and mailing them to folks and being like, "Ha, look at this! I proved it." And you know, be the thickest flipbook ever. (laughs) And you know, those people could be safely written off as cranks. Whereas now, I can, I mean, and did you know, reproduce the entire thing on a handheld computer with multiple save states. So, I mean, the the game was not. You know, not to d- discourage the purpose of the whole enterprise, but the game was not meant to live up to the level of scrutiny that we're putting on it, which is kind of cool in one sense and kind of, you know, terrifying in another.
5: So another another thing about this tower that's interesting is it's one of the heaviest uh, instances of censorship when this game came to America in the game. Um, the... A lot of the characters were clothed. There's a the guy sitting on the tiger. They they drew in a loincloth for him.
4: Satan um, was originally not halfway into the ice. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> he was, but it was it was the top half that was down. That was. <laughs>
2: and uh,
3: not
5: not only that, but the the names of of the uh, characters at the top, right below Kafka, were were changed um, because they were originally what was it like Maria. Was uh, the woman, and I think sleep was the uh, was the the Jesus, and that was changed to uh, girl or lady, and I guess rest, which I guess is, is uh, a little a little more close, but the the cutting of Maria I think is pretty
4: significant. Was That Maria from the a question. Is that what happened to her? Hmm? Yes, totally. I actually have wondered that uh lately is like, so where why why didn't she show up? Don't you sort of expect her to show up at some point, but she never does. Well, maybe that was her. Maybe that was her. Maybe maybe she <laughs> she was like, you know what, Setzer, you are too creepy for me. I will not ever perform for you, let alone date you. But Kefka, you seem like you're alright. Yeah.
5: Did anybody steal the ultima weapon from Jesus? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Because
4: no yeah. <laughs> he's got one. Yeah, yeah I, I I think that uh, that Saint Peter is supposed to have, right? But <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, honestly, Locke. I did not spend a lot of effort in leveling or or buffing, so he was near the bottom of my of my twelve man roster or twelve sorry twelve person roster. I, yeah, twelve men is especially inappropriate con- considering a mo- uh, good portion of the top four were uh, were women.
1: Yeah, but uh, you know, person also doesn't apply to every character either. So don't don't be all uh, uh, humanocentric. Right.
2: Yeah, I'm being I'm being, I'm being I'm being speciesist. I'm sorry. I need to include the Ma- the Moogles and the Yetis and the pan sex- and the pansexual scarf things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well with that let's let's move on to a discussion of the game kind of more broadly and we'll start with uh with a question as proposed by Richard uh which is is this game good?
4: Yeah. Richard can you can you unpack that a little bit like why <laughs> what is there that... to unpack? Yeah.
3: Well, <laughs> well I mean, no it's it's uh, I think okay I think this is my third time going through the game and every time I've played it uh I've forgotten the last time I realized that I don't didn't actually enjoy it that much. And I was surprised every time because I always remember that everybody says that this is such a great game, everyone loves it. Um there are the the huge arguments between, you know, uh the FF7 versus FF6 people and and everyone thinks that FF6 is like the pinnacle of the JRPG and and it really ha- it really has an an amazingly positive reputation and, and uh i just found it a lot of the time really unremarkable and especially in the second half of the game um really frustrating uh it's not just that it's grindy it's but it's it's super super grindy if you want to uh Level up your characters enough that you, when you split them all up at the end, you're not, you know, you're not going to get totally messed up because, uh, you know, Mog isn't uh, strong enough to whatever. Um, you want to have the 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 spells that you need and all this stuff. You have to spend a lot of time grinding, and that after a certain point, that's just not fun. And you have to, you know, you're flying around the world doing a bunch of tasks to get your party back together. For the most part, there's not a lot of story going on. The story that there is kind of random bits and pieces, right? You have the, the Yeti out of nowhere. You have a uh, go who has, no, there's nothing about that, uh, you know, and, there is some story but most of the characters don't really get enough development for the amount of time you put into leveling them. Uh and that, I think it, it th- that's possibly just uh, like a consequence of having too many characters. Uh I think they put too many player characters in there. Um, and they do a lot of interesting things. Like, there's a lot of different every character has a different kind of mechanic for how to use them and what circumstances and different items that they can use and stuff. And that was really, really ambitious. I think this a very ambitious game. But I also think that maybe it just reaches too far. Because I realized at a certain point that I just wasn't having fun anymore. And uh, maybe that's Part of the point, I think that uh, you know like i like we were talking about before, a lot of the game is about um why to go on for these characters you know who have ex- experienced <laughs> terrible things in their past, and they really have to find the motivation to to keep going and to to kill this kefka guy right um and so after the world is destroyed. What you're doing is running around the world, trying to get strong enough to kill one guy and that's really tedious. It gets really really tedious and i'm not sure if they i'm not sure if this is a, if this is intentional on the game designer's part or just a happy or not so happy coincidence um, but it 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 seems like it felt to me like the game wasn't giving me enough motivation to keep going with it. Because it is a game, it's supposed to be fun. If it's not fun anymore, then it's work. And why are you doing it? Um, Hmm. I didn't feel like I was getting the satisfaction of accomplishment. I didn't feel like I was story at the pace that was reasonable for me to sit there and, and be a, a, attacked by dinosaurs or or nastodons every five steps you know yeah.
4: can i ask you a couple of follow-up questions please uh do, do you generally like jrpgs um some of them
3: i like uh-huh. a lot i mean i like a lot of the other ones in the in the ff series i think final fantasy 7 was amazing
4: Um, so maybe I'm just one of those people. And like, and if, uh, if the game had gotten to the floating continent and had you actually stopped Kefka there, do you think you would have liked it? You know, that's a really good question. Um,
3: maybe, maybe it depends. Like, do do you mean like if they had just put the tower there on the floating continent and that was that?
4: Yeah, and like, and your party at that point was uh, was leveled appropriately to beat him, so that the whole second, the whole world of ruin bit just didn't happen pretty much.
3: Uh, you know, I think I might.
4: Yeah, because there is a sense in which I've always felt like with JRPGs, like the the story is the carrot to keep you doing the, what feels very much like work of grinding through the game. Like every now and then you get a exciting combat and I, like I talked through my, my little encounter with Kefka and I was like, that was pretty awesome. But those things are emergent and rare, I feel like. A lot of it feels like work and it's kind of like you're thrown into this river of poop and there is a beautiful crystal rose just at the, like the (laughs) ends of your, your, like your field of sight and they draw you through that river because you think you're going to get to keep glimpsing the rose and that's the cutscenes, right and yeah. then i think you're right that like the what is pulling you through is not just the actual the reward of the scenes but the sense this is this plot this is this story it is drawing me through and then in the world of ruin like you say there isn't really a plot so they throw you back into the river and tell you now imagine a rose And part of the work that you have to do is you have to, you have to make your own plot, invent your own plot as you go through. And one of the things, there's this, uh, this ebook that we've been talking about peripherally throughout this podcast, Mm -hmm. um, that I, does anyone remember, what's the name of the author? Is that listed anywhere? Or is it just an anonymous, really interesting book about Final Fantasy? Anyway, I, I did not. I, I looked for the author's name once and could not find it. I didn't look too hard, but I think that he is just an anonymous genius out there. And he's trying to reverse engineer the design decisions. And one of the things that he says is that in lieu of character development, you have character uh, strengthening, right? And that what happens to your characters in the world of Ruin is not that they actually get plots that really you care about, but that they get their ultimate gear and their ultimate techniques, right? So you don't care about Strago settling a score from his childhood, but if you are a certain kind of person, you really care about Strago getting grand train and being able to kick ass with it, right? Um, and that he, he says that there is a metonymic use of time, that like the, the sort of the story in the first half seems to take place in clock and calendar time. The story in the second half takes place in the achievement of goals and the collecting of awesome doodads and trinkets. Um And I think that, like, to the degree that there is a joy in the second half of the game, it comes in watching your characters become unspeakable badasses. But that does happen pretty slowly, which is why, like I said, I jumped into Kefka's Tower well before I was actually leveled enough to, uh, to handle it. That ended up being a good decision for me, but if it had been like if I was like one iota weaker I would have actually lost, and then it would have been tragic. Yeah, I mean, I think you can
3: contrast this with uh, Final Fantasy 7, where all of the characters pretty much even the minor characters, they each have their their own side quest. And it's not just you go there and you see a flashback. They, there, there is an arc, like each character really has an arc. And I think that you get that in part here, but it's so stretched out in the second half. Um, and it's so full of other stuff that is seemingly irrelevant that it doesn't, there's not enough of it to keep me interested. And, uh, Again, like the last um, Final Fantasy ish game that I played was uh, Bravely Default, which is more, basically a Final Fantasy game without the Final Fantasy baggage. Um, but it does a similar thing, actually. Uh, this is spoilers, I guess. But in the middle chapters of this game, you're basically refighting everybody that you fought in the first couple of chapters, but they're way stronger. And. That's it. And it gets really, really tiresome. Um, you're, you're traveling through dimensions and whatever. You basically have to go through all these different worlds and kill the same people over and over and over again. And no, there's no story. There's no additional story. And it's... It just seems like it was so frustrating because the beginning part of that game, a bravely, bravely default, bravely default, um, was so interesting. The storyline, the characters were really great. The 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 mechanics of get gameplay was really interesting and took some time to kind of figure out. Um, and then there's this huge chunk in the middle where you're just killing the same people over and over and over again. You don't seem to be learning anything, or the characters don't seem to be learning anything, even though you're figuring stuff out. You, the the player, are figuring stuff out that should be obvious, and you start thinking that your characters are morons for not figuring out what's happening, and just doing the same thing over and over again when you shouldn't, like, logically, you shouldn't have to do that. Or you shouldn't think that you should be doing that. Um, and there's a similar kind of feeling here, although it seems even even less like there's anything that you're accomplishing, other than you're getting stronger. Okay, you're getting stronger, but, it, you know, it's the well, kind of me, thing where, 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 a, where a, a, a training a, montage might have worked.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. Let me Let me jump in with a comparison to more conventional storytelling, either in a book or particularly a movie. Where, you know, it's relatively common, I feel like, in in movies for there to be a, you know, maybe at the the second act break, there's a battle with the the, the big bad guy and the heroes lose for whatever reason. They're not powerful enough yet. They haven't figured out the weakness. And then, you know, you do spend the third act getting to the point where you can beat the bad guy. Um, But if the only thing that you're doing is just getting your heroes stronger, they have montages for that. And you can skip over all the training where Rocky is running on the beach. Um, and you can just set it to good music and show you can kind of represent the five things that you have to do to get stronger and kind of very quickly skip over that part of the story. But in the, just the mechanics of a video game makes a montage feel like you're cheating someone out of the game. Like, it'd be very unsatisfying if there were at some point in the video game, like this little three minute montage where your guy was running around leveling up without you.
1: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Uh, sorry, um, I was just thinking for me, maybe I always love this game, and maybe the grinding just creates a like a Stockholm syndrome thing where <laughs> any any weaknesses in the plot, I completely overlook at the end where you have this big grand finale um, because it's just so cathartic to have a conclusion for all the characters just because I put so much time into them. And at the end of the game, they sort of... Uh, First, make it into sort of a book. They actually have this image of a book flipping. Um, So you're like, oh, this was a story being told, and now we're getting to the last page. But then it suddenly becomes a movie where you see these, um, you know, these titles of, uh, you know, Cyan as Cyan Garamond, and uh, the game turns black and white, um, which I find lovely. Um, And also, you could even compare it to an opera because you have these, like, this big score. um, And, you know, at the end, it really just sounds like an opera to me, the way it um, just, uh, I don't know, it has that climax. Um, So it's comparing itself, the game is comparing itself to other forms of art. And if you judge it on any of those standards, if you judge it as a fun video game, if you judge it as a movie, if you judge it as an opera, if you judge it as a book, it sort of fails as all of them. But for some reason, if you put all the parts of those different uh, modes of art together and look at the game as like taking bits and pieces from all of them, I actually enjoy it, and uh, I don't know, it just, it always gets me, it moves me at the end, and if it's Stockholm Syndrome, then, I don't know, so be it.
4: I I totally agree with you, and I think that um, it's it's funny, because in a way, I want the JRPG that has no grinding and no tedium. but at the same time, I don't because I wouldn't play that game. You know, I, I wouldn't just watch all the cutscenes of Final Fantasy in order and call that a, a fun day where I watched a movie. Right. Like you need to have the boredom for the non boring parts to be so awesome and to be so moving. And like it, it really does move you and it really does feel awesome. Um and like again, it's it's in that uh, that ebook about the reverse design of Final Fantasy. The idea that like when you use that jewel box and that quick spell to flatten Kafka like a, like an insect, you're like this made it all worth it, right? All of the, all of the suffering, all of those countless dead parents and moblas or whatever, right? You're like you feel a little bit of their pain because you've sunk so much time and energy into this. So Stockholm syndrome is one way to think of it, but it's also um, just sort of the the nature of the experience that in order for for some parts of it to be so so hot and fast other parts need to be cold and slow and it's like it's the transition between them that makes them makes them powerful right Uh, Any of the cutscenes in abstract is dull and wooden and doesn't have, like, great dialogue and whatnot. But compared to the wandering around a map they've been doing for 30 minutes beforehand, it's like frickin' Citizen Kane every time, right? And although you can say that that's like a, a dirty trick that they're playing on my psyche, like... Pleasure doesn't work that way, right? Like, if I enjoyed it, I did
0: actually enjoy it. So, right? I mean, they, so I, they they have games that don't have any plot and are just grinding, and they make millions and millions of dollars because they really they give you dopamine releases at regular intervals.
5: Candy Crush.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, okay. I
5: I I want to commiserate with you, Richard. Thank uh, you. I I also um I think it's interesting that this. I think if this game were to come out today, it would not do well this game is very archaic in a lot of ways um a lot of them related to sort of design decisions that were at the time standard like just random battles yep. all the time or uh, the lack of a useful map yep or it's stuff that if you go and play other jrpgs of the era that's just what you get um I think that, as a result, if you're looking at it as a whole game, yeah, the the story and the plot are, are really well done, and they're fairly sophisticated for the medium, especially at the time. But I'm not sure that the product as a whole holds up to modern scrutiny. And I think that if you look at, I, I think I mentioned this on the very first episode, or maybe the second the the game that Square Enix, I guess Squaresoft, put out 11 months later, Chrono Trigger, mm-hmm. realizes the promise of this game, I think, because they are very similar structurally. Yep. You have right. the destruction of the world, you have this suddenly the world opens up and you just sort of go wherever, you have a ensemble cast of characters, but every misstep, sort of in terms of the the actual gameplay design that this game... Arguably makes Chrono Trigger sort of dances away from. There are no random encounters in Chrono Trigger, but all of the enemies are still there. They just appear on the screen walking around and you walk up to one end and the battle starts. You don't have this tedious grind fest at the end. You just, even though you have the same sort of vignettes character by character, you just go from one to the other flying around in your ship. You, you get the same sort of... Like, it was asked, you know, if you could kill Kefka on the on the uh, Floaty Island, would that make this a better game? Well, in Chrono Trigger, you can. You fight the final boss like 10 times throughout the story, and if you manage to kill him somehow at any of those times, it just goes to a different ending. And the game has like 13 endings, depending on where you choose to, to win. And so I think that it's really interesting to play this game and then play that game and see the a lot of the same people going, okay, where did we make the mistakes in Final Fantasy VI? How can we avoid making those mistakes again?
0: Well, let me, let me take, tackle that uh, as, as kind of a way of jumping off to our, to our next uh, forward question here, because it's that, interesting you say, like, if the game were released today, it wouldn't be very popular. But I think that's uh, not an unfair standard, because certainly, like, if you're going to spend 30 hours playing something, you want to know, is it fun today, not was it fun 20 years ago? But at the same time, I think, you know, certainly with cinema, where we, we, you kind of judge things on at least a bit of a grading curve. You're not expecting a movie from the 1930s to have, you know, amazing special effects that are going to deceive you. You're, you're, you're kind of expecting, you know, what you're going to get. Um, so let me ask, is this game art? Whether whether it's good or not, is this game art? I mean, I think yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it, I mean, I think we're, it's mean, I don't know if you're going to get a lot of dissent on that. No, I, I don't think so. But what... what what? Why? What? What about this game is is artistic? What? What so, kind of separate? I think because I think we can at least concede that not all video games are art.
2: Oh, true. I'd argue with you. I don't know. I do. oh.
3: mm, I don't
2: know. <laughs> so I'll I'll weigh I'll weigh in on the yes. Uh, I consider it art because there are aesthetic considerations that you can derive from it uh, above and beyond the mere a utilitarian of you know leveling up a party to get better at certain tasks or b. The mere, you know, stimulus response, stimulus response, dopamine release uh, that we often associate with with single player games. So beyond that, there are aesthetic considerations that can be taken and reminisced over and appreciated even once the game has been finished. And for my money, that makes it art. I mean, what?
1: I don't even know what the point of asking this question is, but I, I think it's interesting. We compare, when we talk about video games, we uh, sometimes compare uh, the games that are art versus the games that are just pure fun entertainment. Um, but in this one, some of you are saying that it was neither um, or it was more work than uh, entertainment. So I guess the question is, is it art or is it just a grind? Um and, yeah, I don't know. I, I, don't, yeah. I, I, think I absolutely don't know how to answer it, I this think question. it
3: absolutely is art, even though I don't think it's very pleasurable for a lot of it. Um, art doesn't have to be pleasurable. I mean, I think they, in a large part, succeeded in creating the kind of thing that they wanted to create. They did tell this story. Storytelling is absolutely art. They made, you know, these visuals, They this music. Uh, the, the gameplay mechanics, like every piece of it individually, is art, and it does come together into something unified, into something that is one thing. You can look at this thing. This is Final Fantasy VI. This is what it is. It has its flaws, but uh, I think I think it definitely succeeds. You know, as a work of art. That doesn't mean that it has to be enjoyable or even good um obviously a lot of people think that it is good i, I know that i'm in the minority um, but yeah i think it i think it's unquestionably art i think it it's a successful work of art
5: yeah i mean we we talked about ergodic literature in right, the absolutely. maybe pre, yeah and like it it's a piece that requires non trivial effort to traverse it, it goes back to the the Arseth cyber cybertext Book that we that we talked about in the very very first week. Oh,
4: but... well, and I think it's it's more than just literature, right? Because even if you were to take most of the narrative out of it, um, I mean, it would be hard to play that game for any stretch of time. But the game system itself has certain aesthetic values. Like, um, I mean, I, I think that it's interesting going back to what John was saying about like, well, it's not utilitarian. Uh, because it's more than just making a party stronger, but making a party stronger isn't really a utilitarian thing, right? Because like, there's no there's no utilons in the virtual world. Um,
2: yeah, the the port of words. I, I I think it I think it applies more to other discussions I've had offline with what is and isn't art, where I've I've tried to sort of stake out the territory that you know a well a well made faucet isn't art in and of itself because you know it, it may be beautifully crafted, but you know it, it's Crafted to serve a purpose, whereas something whose chief value is, or, or from a lot of it is derived in contemplation rather than in use, uh, is more art than something else. So that's,
0: yeah.
2: So I, it, I guess I guess leveling up as utilitarian is a bad bad example. Yeah, right. yeah, this,
0: but I think that, this is actually a exceedingly difficult legal problem uh, because in patent literature and th- things like that, you, you try to separate out the aesthetic elements of things because people will try to. Either copyright something that kind of should be patented, or patent something that maybe should be copyrighted. So you have to kind of like pull out the aesthetic elements of of something. So like the uh, those little bike racks that are basically just one long continuous S curve that it literally started out as somebody's sculpture, and then they realized that they could tweak it a little bit and make it into a perfect bike rack. And so there was there was a uh, I think it was a trademark case actually about uh, whether or not this. What part of that was art and what part of that was functional? And it's actually shockingly difficult to, to make that distinction.
4: Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, so that's that's actually enshrined in law that like if it has a practical use, that is not an aesthetic thing.
0: Right. Yeah. Generally speaking, if it's practical, then you fall under patentability, and you have to fulfill the, the requirements of patents. But if it's art, then it falls under copyright, and so you get a kind of different. There's kind of different protection, not greater or lesser in either one, but it's different protections. Uh, So if you have like a lamp that is also that's like a statue with a light bulb coming out of it, you know, that you might be able to copyright the very specific features of the statue that you made. But if there's some functional aspect of the, the design you made, you couldn't copyright that.
4: Shane, were you about to say something? No, I'm good. <laughs> okay. So I mean, what I found interesting, this is, um, I, as far as I know, this idea about art goes back to Kant, actually. Um, and it's something that has always struck me as very, very intuitively true, although I don't know if I can like, follow the, the logic he puts behind it, which is that one of the ways that you know something is art is that there's no point to it other than it being art, right? Like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you or for anyone else. It is self-sufficient. And I think that um, one of the ways that I would say I know that Final Fantasy VI is art, is that to a certain degree, it is a, a commodity, right? And they have to sell those games. So that aspect is not an artistic aspect. And to a certain degree, it, it, as, a, as I think, again, John was saying, like it triggers some dopamine receptors in me. But there's so much to the game that is beyond what it needs to be for either of those things to happen, right? Like, I mean, just say trivially, having the Sasquatch in there by the time you get any whiff of Sasquatch, your money is long since spent, right? Um, and it's not really going to make the difference on whether you enjoy the game or not. I have to feel like the, the choice to put in a Sasquatch is a particular kind of aesthetic decision. And I think it has to do, I mean, from a plot point of view, yeah, Umara was trivial. But from a game point of view, having a character that is always in automatic fight mode is actually a really interesting decision, I think. Um, and for the kind of person who likes to sort of to play around with all of the different party combinations and get get Gao all tweaked out with his rages, Umara was a great character character to have, you know. Um, and, and that speaks to a certain spirit of intellectual exploration and the, the joy of possibility and of combination that you find not so much maybe in like literature, but very much in music, very much in visual art. And I feel like the sort of a game system, which is the purest thing that a game is, is an art in that sense, that it's like there's this possibility space which can be explored, but never to any end other than the exploration of that possibility space.
3: Well, I mean, yeah. Going, going, touching on the on the Kant thing, uh, but he does make the distinction between um, agreeable, something that's agreeable, something that's beautiful, and something that's good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I, I think that any work of art can be either can can be either or all of them, right? So something that's agreeable is just something that you like; it's a matter of taste, um, but you don't necessarily think that everybody should like it right yeah right 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 if if i remember correctly so that's that's exactly right so something beautiful uh is is something that you think has inherent value and that everybody should
4: like right and And, uh and 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 you you can sort of intellectually know that like okay taste differs but Everyone is wrong. And I do have to say that, that Richard, you are wrong to not like this game. It's great. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That's that's fair. Um, I'm trying to... I've been trying to figure out whether it's me or everybody in the world that's wrong. And usually it's everybody in the world. But... (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. I mean, I think that... I think that having objective... Aesthetics is a problematic idea, but I don't think that means that it's impossible. You know, like like Kant does talk about this, that you have people who just have bad taste, right? That people who like things that are bad. Or either either morally bad or just or aesthetically bad, or whatever, and those people are just wrong. You know, you can have people who are bad at math, there's there's some objective sense in which 2 plus 2 is 4, but some people just can't understand that, or, you know, children who haven't learned it yet, they just don't know. And that doesn't mean that alternate ideas of 2 plus 2 are legitimate it just means that some people are better at it than others and you can do that with aesthetics too you can do that with art uh i think today we're we're very we have a very weird uh we kind of don't want to tell people that their taste is bad but we still shame people for liking things that we don't we have guilty pleasures right Which is the idea that we are getting, that we find something that's not beautiful agreeable, basically. That we're deriving pleasure from something that we recognize we kind of shouldn't. And uh, Carl Wilson, uh, this music critic, wrote a book uh, ten years ago, and and it it just was re-released, called... Uh, uh, the, let's talk about love, and it's about the uh, the the Celine Dion album. Let's talk about love, but it's really about taste. It's about it's like kind of philosophical investigation of of taste. The uh, the subtitle is uh, well, the the original subtitle was a uh, a journey to the end of taste, and the, it was re released under with the subtitle uh why other people have such bad taste
1: although i i didn't read the book but i read reviews of it and, and if i recall he eventually started liking her just because yeah. he was yeah. following her around so much and sort of grinding his way through the book
3: yep exactly so it might it might be partly that um that uh stockholm syndrome you were talking about or it could be you know that you that one comes to appreciate things that they didn't see before uh you know like uh, d- does our taste improve by trying to like things like if I had gone on and just kept playing it until it was fun <laughs> like d- does that mean that my does that mean that my uh my my art appreciation stat was increasing, or you know, or, or...
4: <laughs> what, what is the the dead demon corpse that you need to strap to your forehead to grind your art appreciation stat on level up? Is what right. I want to know. Right, exactly. So uh, me... I, I completely have no idea
3: where I was going with this anymore.
0: What but... <laughs> well, so, I mean, we've asked is this game good? We've asked is this game art? I'm just going to ask you, what is game?
1: <laughs> Such game.
0: Uh that's no, is I think uh Jordan I think there was a question you wanted to ask uh what, what does a game mean as a story and, and or and what does it mean as a game and, and is there a difference? No, yeah just yeah you, the, the, you jump off from that.
4: Well so the, the 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 what is game is a is an interesting question. Um right like there's one one set of thing one thing that I've heard is that a game what makes a game a game is that there's a set of rules and there's a win condition, right? And that like that that is what makes a game a game. And that's sort of the uh the definition that I want to take in this question I have. What does this game, Final Fantasy Six, mean when we look at the plot of the game? And then what does the, the game mechanic of it mean? That's harder to abstract, right? We don't have at our fingertips uh, all of the tools of like, you know, 12 plus years of, uh, of English literature in, in high school and college to tell us what the rule system means. But I think you can kind of do it. And I think one of the interesting things that really looking at a story-heavy game like an RPG allows you to do is that there might be a conflict between the meaning of the story, considered as a story, and the meaning, in scare quotes, of the game, considered as a game. Um, I have some half-baked thoughts about this, but I was hoping that other people would just charge into the breach. And three, two, okay. Half baked thoughts. (laughs) It (laughs) is. We touched on some of this stuff while we were talking about um, Kafka's confrontation with everybody, the like the existentialist versus um, nihilist version. And I think it's come up a bunch. uh, And I think it's very true that one of the things that the the story is telling you is that love and other warm, squishy emotions are like their own justification for existing. Um, and they don't need to produce anything. In fact, they probably won't. They're still awesome, right? And like, that's why you should live—is for those those tiny, warm, squishy things, right? Does that seem about fair for what the meaning of the story is? I think so. Yeah. So here we run into the the grand, the hard problem of Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, also, the hard problem of Pokemon, uh, the TV show, not the not the games, which is that. If you watch any of those TV shows, which uh, I used to, I used to like sleep on Pete Senzel's couch a couple nights a week, so I ended up watching a lot of those TV shows. They teach you how to play the game wrong. They teach you how to play the game really badly because what they will do is they will put up your your whatever your monster is, let's call it Pikachu for convenience sake, and it's going up against something that is way too tough for that Pikachu to take. And what the TV show of, of Pokemon will have you believe is that if you love your Pikachu, it'll win anyway, right? That's not how the Pokemon game works. Like if you invest a lot of money into Pokemon cards and play like Ash does on the Pokemon TV show, you, will, well, you won't lose any of your money because that's not how it works, but you'll lose every game and that'll be sad for you, right? Love doesn't have an effect on game mechanics, and the it doesn't have, have an
3: effect loving on loving the... be- well enough. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> have you tried loving your Pikachu better?
5: They have implemented <laughs> a love, uh, a love stat sorry, in the the Pokemon ahead. games. <laughs>
4: That's awesome. But, uh, like, but like, so the, yeah. But but the game is game is deterministic, right? Like, um. There is a story about Terra and Kefka and Celis and Locke and a bunch of slightly less important characters and espers that is going on, but there's also the master RPG story, which is that my character is represented by an integer, I will slowly add small numbers to my integer until it is the largest integer, and then I will kill the other, like the second largest integer on the board, which is Kefka, right? Um, and that's just how that works. And I, I enjoy both of these stories, right? But they're very, very different stories. Um, and one of them is like all hard, sharp edges. And one of them is about like the importance of the things that don't fit into a world of hard, sharp edges. And I find that a, an interesting conflict. I wonder if actually the game is made better or worse uh, by that conflict. You know, maybe that tension part of what drives it forward rather than it being something that an ideal game would resolve and have exactly the same meaning in both the story and the game.
3: Well, I think that's what uh, that's what we'd call ludonarrative dissonance, right? And it's supposed to Thanks. be bad in co- in contemporary <laughs> in contemporary game design. We're supposed to try to avoid that, or else at least uh, lampshade it, right?
5: What else are you gonna do? But I don't know. It's I feel like
3: it,
4: it yeah, but it, but it somehow works, doesn't it? Like. Yeah. Anyway, so that was one of the things I wanted to say. The other thing I wanted to say uh, is another personal message to Pete Fenzel, which is that uh, a callback to the episode of the podcast he was on, we all know now that the, the character that was wild and uncontrollable that, uh, that he was going to name after Nick Cage is Umaro, right? And in honor of Pete, when I was playing through that part of the game, I did indeed name uh, Umaro M. Cage. But then something very unexpected happened to me, which is that I found myself playing through the part of the game where you recruit the world's most perfect mimic who can just transform him or her itself into anything that he sees and put on an absolutely convincing performance. And so I also named Gogo Cage.
1: <laughs> It Makes sense. Copying. I actually have a question is, uh, that goes back to what you were saying, Jordan. Um, I mean, it's sort of about Pokemon, but Pokemon and uh, Final Fantasy have this similar thing, or Final Fantasy VI have this similar thing where they're always talking about love and friendship and working together and this sort of like communalism. But Final Fantasy VI is a game you play by yourself against a computer. And I was wondering what everyone would think. Like, Do you think you would like this game better if, it was, uh, if there was a co-op mode? Do you think that would reduce some of the ludonarrative dissonance? Uh, like, how would it affect the story as a whole or your experience of it? Um, would it make it better or worse?
3: I think it would make it more difficult. I don't know. I don't usually well, sure. play video games with other people. Like, it would it would make it hard to play it, like, it would literally make it hard to play it. You'd have to have someone else there all the time. It'd be like kind of like Twitch plays FF
0: six. Well, it's it's funny because you you know throughout this game you have to like walk around and pick up all the members of your party and convince them like no that it would attack on another layer of that. It's like no, I know you need to study, but let's let's go let's go finish Final Fantasy six. So, like I know you need to take care of your kids, but you know let's, let's go finish Final Fantasy six. I think
4: that there would be a way of designing a co-op version of this game that would be really compelling and good, but it wouldn't be like, you know, all right, so today I'm going to be Setzer and you be Locke, right? And we're just going to control that one character as we go through the same dungeon together. I feel like you would have to... um, Like when the party gets split, as it so often does, like each of you takes a party and goes off and does your thing, but you remain on like chat with each other. And then you would want to like build in functionality to the game such that you're not just like talking about Game of Thrones while you go through the motions of grinding. But there are like things that you can observe and warnings you can give and mysteries that you can solve sort of in real time as you piece this stuff together, Um, you know. I mean, imagine, they sort of get into this with the, the very final tower, like there are switches that need to be thrown, right? And the way that it works is you walk to the end of the line and throw the switch that is there, right? There's, it would be too punishing to have it be anything else. But if you had people navigating those branches in real time, then you could afford to put in, like, an actual puzzle there, right? Where you, you have to, like, run back and forth and do lots of different things with the switches, yada, yada, yada. And I could see that being pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I mean there are games. I mean it's not really an RPG, but like the Lego games that they had, like Lego Star Wars and whatever, they sort of function that way. So yeah, I think there's a way to do it. I just was I've never seen that. Although maybe I haven't played many video games lately, so maybe they do exist. I've never seen that in game with such you know a story like an epic storyline. Those tend to be more entertaining, like puzzly, like you were saying, Jordan. Um, and I was just wondering if that co op mode, uh, you know, is sort of have a synergy with this story of like we all have to come together and, you know, love each other and do this stuff as a team, blah, blah, blah. So that
4: was, yeah,
1: just something that keeps
4: let me put it to you thus, though, right? So there's something weird about Final Fantasy, because it celebrates friendship while encouraging you to have no friends because you spend all your hours playing Final Fantasy, right? But there's nothing weird in our minds about Lord of the Rings, because it's all about fellowship, and yet to read that book, you need to spend about 30 hours sitting on your butt on a couch not talking to people, right? And, uh, of course, the, the trivial answer is that, well, yes, but literature exists in the world and in conversation and in your interactions with other other readers. So I put it to you Shayna, that we are currently enjoying the co-op mode of Final Fantasy VI.
3: Oh, yes.
1: Actually you reminded me of something completely different and it's sort of going back to the game even though we have been talking in a general sense about games, so but man, isn't it the end of Final Fantasy Six? Um, it reminded me so much of the end of Lord of the Rings. I mean, obviously there's a whole genre of literature about like magic leaving the world, but we've talked in the past about how they they both seem or Final Fantasy fantasy six seems inspired by the end of world two and you know, nuclear weapons and all that. And you could argue that Lord of the Rings also is a reaction to the end of world war two. But um, it struck me this time playing the game that Tara sort of like um, opposite bizarro Frodo. And in this case, she sort of has the choice almost to go to the Esper world, like going on with the elves to the West. And yet, Her answer is that she's going to stay with the humans and live her little life, um, you know, as a mortal. And it just struck me that, uh, yeah, we should we should do a thing where you play Final Fantasy VI and you watch all the Lord of the Rings movies and then you pass out because you have just consumed so much art at once. And it was just so great. Uh, And you loved it so much because they are both objectively good pieces of art.
0: Well, I, I think with that, that's a, a good place to leave our, our conversation here. We, we've finished a, a quite lengthy co-op play of uh, Final Fantasy VI here. I appreciate uh, everybody for uh, our, our now eight weeks of, of talking about the, uh, the game here in our, in our book club. I think our, our experiment of sorts was a success. Uh, for our listeners, uh, we're we'll definitely be doing future book clubs. Maybe not uh, always video games. We've we've done Slaughterhouse Five now, and Ender's Game, and Final Fantasy VI. So we're gonna be we're gonna keep mixing it up. We may may do a game next. We may do a book next. Uh, send us in your suggestions. I think we might have our next topic picked out, but we're always looking for stuff down the road. Uh, any any parting parting shots? Big thank you to Justin for for chiming in like
4: a hero on these. It's been really great having you on board, man.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and thank you, Ben, yeah. for your the thing that you always do, which is uh, very important. And, I, yeah, I just wanted to sound like chapters in a self-help booklet and say uh, I'm so happy that you guys are in my party in this video game that we call life. <laughs> or overthinking overthinkingit.com, I don't know.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that that thing we always do is we finish with uh, the website, so uh, you can keep the conversation going. The forums will remain open, so if you have thoughts about the game, uh, we'd love to hear them on the <laughs> on the website. Yeah. We're, we're probably done with our thoughts on the game. I think I think hours and hours of audio of, of audio tape is is enough is enough for people the, the us. The Whoa,
1: always more.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the
4: final bonus dungeon is the forum thread on
0: overthinkingit.com. there's the bonus dungeon to all the Final Fantasy. The Final Fantasy VI has been waiting for for twenty years. Is uh, is our forum thread? That's
1: the same game. There's a super a
0: secret item it. hidden in the in the forum. Right, you just have to type in the right, just the right thing. Uh, so, so actually, what
4: you need to do is. You just hang out in the forum for hours and hours until you get attacked by a random monster. I, I swear it happens, guys.
5: <laughs>
4: we we try to keep
0: the trolls out, but you never know one might pop up. You know. The forum thread is the final boss of the forums. <laughs> exactly, you have to work your way through the different levels of the of the thread. Uh, and all of that and more is that uh, is that on the web at www overthinking.com the place where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. is
4: probably, probably, probably doesn't, doesn't
0: deserve, deserve.
1: deserve. So, um, Ultros, wh- where did he go? Nothing I else. mentioned him earlier. Well, yeah, all right. He's good. Oh,
3: he's, oh, wow. he's fine. He's, he's living it up.
5: I made sure to, to mention him. I didn't want to have an Ultros list podcast.
3: Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Big taxes.
5: Uh, those are the three things that are guaranteed in podcast: death, taxes, and ultras.
3: <laughs> <laughs>